Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to see you here. We have, as Mr. Ames probably announced, 192, so we still have plenty of room and won't have to split for a while, but we need to pray about God giving us another bigger hall to meet together, so I hope all of you be praying about that. We've had great growth in the work recently, and we certainly do need to uh, pray, though, as Mr. Ames announced, for our brethren that are really hurting a lot of them over in United. And I know that they are apparently losing tens of thousands of people. I shouldn't say tens of thousands, but I mean thousands there from their own indications. And so uh, we know that Satan is very busy trying to divide God's people. He is the great one to divide and conquer and all of that. So we ask God to guide it the right way. I appreciate Mr. Fitzroy Greenman's sermonette. My uh, Mr. Uh, Winnale and I had a nice lunch with him and his wife the other day and got better acquainted. Makes me want to go down to uh, Trinidad, Tobago myself. Apparently, it's very nice down there. I've never been anywhere in the Caribbean except Jamaica, and that was back in 1974. So it's been a long, long time. So I don't know if Jamaica is calling or Trinidad <laughs> or whatever. But uh, anyway, a lot of you go down there, and it is a beautiful area, I understand. Brethren, we really are in the last days, and Mr. Ames was announcing, and they had a lot more than I realized they would about the flooding in Australia. I was going to talk about that some, so I won't need to as much now, but most of you just heard that it is a flood of biblical proportions, and it's covering an area the size of uh, Germany and France combined. It's a huge area. And as some of the reports brought out, it's going to cause the price of food to go up quite a bit. It's a huge wheat-growing area, and it's also a big cotton-growing area, and it's also an area that has a lot of snakes. And I forget the name of the snakes, but they had a particular kind of snake. I guess it's here in this Wall Street Journal report. It's the Eastern Brown. It's called the Eastern Brown, a breed that can grow more than six feet long, and it's considered the second most venomous snake in the world. And those snakes are going all over because they're seeking to get on dry ground out of the flooding. So far, our people have been protected down there, and we're very grateful for that. But as you know, we've had terrible things like that happening, and they're increasing the terrible flooding and, and storms in the Philippines a couple of years ago, and Haiti, and Chile, the terrible earthquake more recently, and of course a couple, three years ago, Katrina hit right here in the United States. Terrible storms, and sometimes, as in Katrina and some of these other situations, our brethren were very greatly affected. Not all of them, but a number of them were affected. And those things, brethren, are going to go get worse. They are going to get worse, not better. We know that. And so we're going to have to learn to help our brethren in unprecedented disasters. And think about that, because those disasters are going to get a lot worse and where will we be when those things happen? I want you to turn with me back to Luke chapter 21, if you would, in your Bibles. Luke 21, and I'm going to begin reading. It's, as you know, in the earlier verses, it describes the normal events before Christ's coming, uh, such as earthquakes and famines and pestilences and fearful signs and great signs. But over in verse 22, it says, For these are the days of vengeance the days just before Christ's return, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So every single major prophecy is going to be fulfilled during these coming days. 
And brethren, as I think Mr. Greenman indicated, those days seem to be coming upon us very soon. We don't know and we don't want to set dates. But as I said a couple of weeks ago, even the demons have certain knowledge and they indicate that something big is going to happen in 2012. So some reading world news constantly, which I do, I think they're going to be a buildup of lack of food from storms and other reasons through this coming year. There's going to be a buildup of power, of course, in Europe. There's going to be more problems, perhaps a war breaking out in the Middle East. And there's going to be terrible, there's going to be a little respite from all indications during this year, 2011, from the financial crisis. But underneath, the indebtedness of America and the states and the cities is going to get worse and worse. And so a lot of this may, in fact, blow up in 2012. I'm not saying that's going to be the end of the world because God does not say that. It will not be the end of the world. The demons may try, it's going to say it's the end of the world or the age of Aquarius or whatever they say. They don't under, they have knowledge, but they twist it and pervert it. But I think within the next two years, you're going to see unprecedented things happening. We're already having unprecedented storms, as this was called in Australia. And so we need to be ready. These are the days of vengeance. And he describes then how Jerusalem's going to be surrounded and people taken captive from that city. And he says in verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. That's what happened in Katrina. Men's hearts failing them for fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. These things are going to get much worse and we need to be ready. We need to be close to God. We need to walk with God. We need to have His guidance. We need to have His Holy Spirit. Back in 1 Peter chapter 4, we read about another aspect of the things that we're going to be facing. This is 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. Notice that expression in God's Word, the fiery trial. A terrible trial is coming, which will try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you're partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. If you were approached for the name of Christ, and we are going to be, and we are going to be persecuted, and some of us will be beaten up, some of us will be thrown in jail... Some of us will suffer more than we've ever suffered before in that particular way. I used to think that would happen much sooner. It hasn't happened yet, but God's Word describes it several times. So it is going to happen. It's just a question of when, not whether, but when. A fiery trial, if you're reproached because you believe the truth, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, He has blasphemed, but on your part, part He has glorified so we need to be willing to suffer as a Christian, as the verses continue to tell us in that particular passage, and understand that these things certainly are coming. Now, back in the Gospel of Mark, if you turn there now to Mark chapter 3, we see something here that ties in with this whole concept of what we have to do and how we have to get ready during these fiery trials that are to come, terrible storms and flooding on the one hand, drought and lack of food, lack of water. On the other hand, and persecution coming on God's people. Horrible persecution. It won't be fun. We'll be tempted to hate people. 
but we must not do that. Here we find back in the third chapter of the book of Mark, Jesus here is talking to a whole bunch of people and then his brothers and mother came, verse 31, Mark 3, verse 31. This is Mark chapter 3, verse 31. And they were standing outside the immediate group of his disciples. And they sent into him, apparently dozens of people were in this big crowd around him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And he said to them, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, if she was Holy Mary, the mother of God, <laughs> you think about it, this would never have happened. You know what I mean? He wouldn't have treated her. He didn't dishonor her, but she may not have been converted yet. We don't know that. His brothers apparently were not until some time later. But here's what he said. He says, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle of those who sat about him and said, here, the people around here learning the truth and wanting to act on the truth. We would say the people in God's true church that really are converted. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. If you have a brother and sister and mother and you yourself, what does that say? That says we're family. That says we're family. And brethren, we are family in the church of God. And we need to think about that more in the months and in the years that lie ahead. We are family, all of us. And we sincerely want to feel that way even more than perhaps we do and learn to reach out and take care of one another and help one another. We're going to have to learn to do that more than we have. I probably need to learn to do that more than I have. I gave myself totally during the baptizing tours when I was 21, 22, 23 years old. But then you get back on the campus and you're teaching and you don't think about all the other things out there. And we helped each other here and there. And we have our own jobs here. And now that I'm 80 years old and have a stroke, I can't get around and visit all the sick and all of you. I think you know that as much as I might have 40 years ago. <laughs> but I've got to do what I can do better. And each of you need to do what you can do better to think about it. And we are a family to help each other. We can call each other on the phone. We can pray for each other. We can send notes to each other. We can help in many different ways. We can help each other financially when the time comes. We really can. We've got to learn to do that, brethren, the days and the months that are ahead, because these things may not happen big time in the next year. Perhaps I should start preaching on that again a year and a half or two years from now when it does start happening big time. But I think it's better that I tell you about it ahead of time. The days are coming when we're going to have to do that. And we should do that now. We do have brethren coming in sometimes from other areas that have lost jobs and they're, they're hurting and, you know, you hear about Franklin Graham and his outreach program, and you hear about the works that Mother Teresa did, uh, helping the poor and all that. Well, they're Catholics, and what do they know about anything? Ha, ha, ha. Well, that's not ha, ha too much. They're not converted. We know that. But they do try to help other human beings. They do try to help other human beings. That part is good. It's not their fault. It was not Mother Teresa's fault, so far as I know, that God did not turn the screw in her head and give her understanding. If he had, she might have been a wonderful true Christian. And in tomorrow's world, she might turn out to be a better Christian than any one of us in this room with the zeal she had to help others. I don't know that. I'm just trying to get us to think about it. 
So we've got to think about it and try to be realistic about it. Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my family, my brother, my sister, and my mother. And so we've got to have that concept that we are family, and that is what I'm going to be talking about today. And God is building an eternal family, brethren. Right now, God is building an eternal family, all of us in God's church. And we hope that many thousands of our brethren over in United and David Hume's church and even Gerald Flurry's church and these other groups, Little Scattered, can all be part of that family. We know most of them will be in the great white throne judgment, but many of them will be even in tomorrow's world. Some of them will be shaken by the problems that will occur because of wrong practices and wrong forms of government and wrong understandings and fightings and factions and politickings and backstabbings that some of them have. But nevertheless, a lot of the brethren, they don't understand what's happening. They don't get it. They don't realize what's the problem altogether. They're just following their leaders. They mean well. Thousands of them may come with us. And if we reach out to them, pray for them, cry out that God will help them understand, many of them no doubt will come, and I hope you'll do that. But on the other hand, God is merciful to them, and they're humans, and we want to help them, and we should help them. We should try to reach out to them in every way that we can, and I hope all of you will do that and pray for them, and we need to help some of them individually too, as they would help some of us in time of need, you know, I mean physically with food and and resources and things like that. We all ought to try to help one another that know God and are trying to serve God, even though we do it in somewhat different ways at times, because we are part of the family, certainly in this church, and many of them may be our brethren and have God's Spirit also, as we know. And we should understand that and have that attitude toward them and all human beings need to be helped. Every human being on earth is made in God's family. God's image, I mean, and will eventually be part of that family. Turn back to Hebrews now, if you would, uh, the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to turn back to uh, chapter uh, 12, Hebrews at this point, chapter 12, and uh, let's begin reading here, if I can get this place for myself here Hebrews chapter 12 he's been describing the power of God on the uh, Mount Zion when God gave the Ten Commandments and the whole mountain just shook and he says in verse 21 so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling but you have come Paul writes to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, notice now, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. We are coming to join eventually the spirits of just men made perfect. God's Holy Spirit impregnating human beings all over the earth as God calls some of us today, as God calls others over the next several years, as God calls virtually everyone in tomorrow's world and all the world then in the great white throne judgment that have not had a genuine opportunity yet. He will open their minds. He will open their hearts. And they will understand. And eventually everyone will be part of the spirits, the, the, the spirit essence in our brain 
the spirits of just men made perfect. He wants us to realize all of us are made in the image of God. And when you meet someone on the street and when you meet someone in the mall and you meet even bad guys that have look at you kind of, you know, like they want to hit you or like Mr. Greenman was saying, they might want to punch you in the nose. <laughs> you want to say, okay, well, I don't like this, but these are human beings. They're made in the image of God and we should look beyond the immediate. We should look beyond their carnality. Jesus had to do that. How could Jesus possibly have said as he was being killed and hanging on the cross, suffering, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. They don't get it. They don't understand. He understood that. So we've got to think of all human beings as potential brothers when their spirits are made perfect in the family of God and reach out to every human being to a certain degree. But as it says back in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, do good to all men, Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, but especially, especially those of the household of God. And you know that we should emphasize that's not wrong. As I've explained before, and I'm not going back on that, we can't spend most of our money, most of our tithes and offerings should obviously be toward getting the message of God out because their do-good efforts are frankly in vain. We can take every dime that comes into this work, I mean every dime, and send it to India or Bangladesh or somewhere. It would just be used up in a few hours or a few days, and the people would go right back to their suffering because they don't know God. Their way of life brings on that suffering. So that's not our main emphasis. And yet as we get to know certain human beings, we can be more responsible. If we have outside people that are neighbors next to us or in our neighborhood, we have a little extra responsibility there. We have, should have a little extra concern there. We can have brethren in other branches of the church and have more feeling toward them, which we should, than just outsiders totally. And those right in the living church of God is our special responsibility, just as it is my responsibility and my wife's responsibility, or any of you who have little children. We don't have little children. I shouldn't say now, but you know what I mean. Had them. We've got to teach them to brush their teeth. I don't need to teach the neighbor's children to brush their teeth. Their parents will do that. My special responsibility is to my family. And our special responsibility is to our family and the living church of God. But on the other hand, there are people that are orphaned or needing help here and there, and we should help them too using that analogy. We've got to reach out to every human being and have that concept, but especially those of the household of faith. So let's understand that's the mind of God. Turn back to Matthew chapter 25 now, if you would, brethren. Matthew chapter 25 and here is something that I know you're familiar with, and yet we sometimes neglect to emphasize as much as we should. Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 31. Jesus said, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in all His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, and that's going to be an awesome time, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. 
and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has planned to have a kingdom, a government, an enlarged family, if you would. God works through families. He has always done that. He worked, first of all, of course, through his own son, Jesus Christ, his son. He worked through Abraham and then Isaac, Abraham's son, and then Jacob, and then Jacob's sons, and on down the line. And you find many of the great men of God did use their children. Some of their sons turned aside. Some were good. Some of Aaron's sons had were, were, were killed because of their blasphemy. But then two of his sons carried right on and were good. Some of David's sons served as chief ministers. And God is building a family, a literal family, ought to exemplify that as much as we can. God doesn't promise to call all of our children. But as I look out, I see Mr. O'Gwen, and he's part representative of his family. And Mr. Rod McNair is part of his family. And God works through families. And that's fine. And we should do that. But in the larger sense, in the church of God, we are all family and we need to think about it, pray about it in that way. So he said, the kingdom is prepared from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me. Well, most of you know that parable. Then the righteous will answer saying, when did we do this? And he said, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You do it to any human being, and you do it to God. You do it to Christ. Because in the larger sense, all these people, there weren't a bunch of converted people out there at that time. He's just talking about you're helping other human beings, helping other human beings. But especially since the church age is here, we know that our special responsibility is to them. We don't have one record for any of you who are new, by the way, Think about it. We don't have one single record in the Bible of Christ or the apostles sending money down to Egypt or somewhere in Africa or over into Bangladesh or India to help people over there. They could have done that. They heard sometimes by traitors about terrible things. They were concentrating on the brethren, and that's as it should be. They couldn't help everybody in the world in that particular way. So we're not trying to get a big worldwide thing going to save the world from its problems. We can't save the world from its problems. They're sinners. They're, they're cut off from God. But as we reach them individually, or some of them are right down the road in our neighborhood, or we have relations with them in our business or place of business, or our family, this physical family, even unconverted relatives, and especially in God's church, our spiritual family, we have responsibility. And we should reach out to help them and serve them in every way we can. And so he says, Then he will say to those on his left hand, verse 41, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire. Who is that fire prepared for? Not for humans. God's not trying to burn humans, but it was prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. Who gave you no food? Some of us, perhaps, have had a chance to help others in the church, and we didn't do anything about it. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Yes, a new person, a new family moved into the neighborhood here in, in the living church of God, and we didn't think about it. We just sort of neglect them and let them go. 
we should try to reach out to them and help them. That's all I'm saying. We can't do it perfectly. We can't know everything about everybody. But brethren, if we can get this concept in our mind that we are Christian, we are all Christians, and we are family, we're an enlarged family, and we want to reflect Jesus Christ in this attitude, in this way, and in every way we treat every human being to think of it, that we are family. Eventually, we're going to be in God's family and God's kingdom forever. So we do want to really think about it in that way. I remember so well, as I've told you sometimes in the past, but a lot of you have never heard this, my old Methodist grandmother was not converted, and she didn't understand, but she was a good old Methodist and very sincere she was converted to Methodism, by the way, but not to God's truth, but a good woman. And she, and one of the things I always remember is Grandma reading me the Bible. She read me the Bible more than any other human being as I grew up, and I can't forget that. I'm glad she did. She didn't understand it fully. She just had the sentimental, but she got me in the habit of thinking about the Bible. Then... She got my daddy, who had hardly ever let me use the car as a teenager because times were tough in the Second World War. We only had one old 32 Buick that was about to break, and she didn't want me to wear it out too soon and so on. But she got daddy to let me drive her around the edge of town because Joplin was a miner's town, and some of them would be out of work, and they lived out in these tin can shacks, and they didn't have food and she'd find out through the Methodist Church and their aid society or whatever it was who needed help. And I, she couldn't drive, but I, as her 16 or 17 or 18-year-old grandson, would take her out, you know, and she was doing the good. I kind of went along. It gave me a chance to drive. But it was good for me because I saw a grandmother give these people a great big basket of groceries and then she would have a, a moment of prayer. You know how the Protestants do and ask God to bless them and all. That's fine. She was very sincere. And they probably weren't converted through that, but they were smiled and they were glad to have food for their family. And they had the, the, the realization that here is a Christian woman, as they understood it and certainly intended to be, helping them in the name of Christ out to the edge of town. That was something I can never forget. She helped people. She helped people all over town in a number of different ways. And when she died, others told me the Methodist church was packed and they had had very few funerals where it was so busy in the church. But she did a lot of good. I've told you about one of our deaconesses up in the Portland, Oregon church during my first ministry talk called Close Shippert. And she was an old friend of Mr. Armstrong going way back to 1936 and came in the early days of the work. And she was very sincere. She had some human problems, as we all do, but she was very, very helpful. And Chloe would find out if a young woman was pregnant, and she would try to help them or, you know, babysit with them or take care of them if they were unable to cook or just had had a baby or about to, and all kinds of things she'd do. She'd find out if people were sick and go out and help them or bring them food. And when I moved into town as a young 22-year-old bachelor, she was older than my mother, by the way, Why she took care of me, too. And she uh, would bring me snacks or cookies or good things sometimes. And every week she would call, uh, write me a little note. And I was trying to be so careful with the works money, I didn't even get a phone. Mr. Armstrong pushed me to get one. I never did. I was trying to save money. I had to go to the phone booth to call him. He instructed me to call him once a week, but I'd go and do it through a phone booth. But anyway... Uh, she would write me a note 
and thanked me so much for the wonderful sermon that I gave the previous Sabbath. Well, later on, I began to realize from what others said, and I perceived, well, I was not giving any wonderful sermon. I was practicing. I was practicing on her and practicing on the others, but she was trying to encourage me, and she helped people all through that church and set a wonderful example. Some of you have heard again about Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Really, he did a lot too, but concentrating on Mrs. Roy Hammer back in Texas and how she helped. And she was helping people all around the area there in the church as the church got started. And she was a one-man, one-woman, I should say, organizing committee for the whole Feast of Tabernacles back there. And they had a kind of a mini-feast in the spring during the days of unleavened bread as well during those days they'd have eight days of preaching and mr armstrong and ted would go there and spend the whole eight days quite often preaching and they'd have services every single day and mrs hammer would organize it she would help people get places to stay she would bring them food if they needed it and all kinds of things all over that area and uh, she was if some of you don't know she was uh, mr ted armstrong's mother-in-law But she was a wonderful woman. Raymond McNair and I showed up on the baptizing tour. The next year, Burke and I came by because we'd met them at the feast. They got to come by, and we didn't come by for help. We really didn't. But when we got there, we got plenty of help. Uh, She insisted on feeding us a great big meal, and we weren't getting very many good meals. We didn't have much money, so we got a good meal. And then she says, well, I know you boys. And so we said, no, we don't need any help. She says, I know how you boys are, and you're... uh, you you don't you you probably need me to wash your clothes don't you no we're fine we're no she said you bring your clothes over here and i'll wash them she sort of told us to <laughs> and i was kind of glad because we were kind of rinsing our our underclothes and t-shirts and stuff out under the sink in the motel and a little bit of soap that they weren't well done at all so we were really glad to have her wash our clothes but she did all kinds of things just like that over and over and people can do good to help others in so many ways. As I say, Chloe Shippert would go out around and find people in need and help them, and she would write notes to others and call others on the phone and encourage them. I heard about it. She wasn't bragging to me about it. She never bragged to me about it. The same thing with Mrs. Hammer was calling people, helping them in that way. We may have people among you doing things like that, I know, but... I'm not trying to uh, flatter anyone here. I'm just talking about these ladies that are now dead. But they did do those things. And I'm very grateful. That's an example of laying down our lives for our brethren, an example of Christian service, of giving. And sometimes they would bring them food, you know, and Mr. and Mrs. Hammer would pay the way for someone to stay in a motel or have them in their house or all kinds of things like that. I heard of those things at that time. Back in those days, many of her brethren were doing that to each other, I think, more than we are today because brethren were more scattered. We live around uh, many of our brethren scattered as as we've had to start the work all over and uh, we're more busy. More of the women have to work than used to, which is not good at all, but it means the women don't have time to do those motherly and grandmotherly things as much. But we've got to learn to take time and help our brethren, and that's the men as well as the women. Back in Luke chapter 10, if you turn there, Luke chapter 10, turn with me then to this chapter uh, 10 of Luke and beginning in verse 25. And verse 25 is a very key point here. A certain lawyer stood up and tested Christ. 
He was putting Christ to the test. They're always trying to trick him in some ways, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, So here's this teacher, who apparently was very sincere, this particular guy. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Boy, that's wonderful to think about every good and every perfect gift, the beauty that you see in the world, every sweet thing from a little child, every beautiful piece of music, everything good comes from God, our Father. Our life, our breath, our food, everything we have, He is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. We worship Him, we adore Him, we obey Him, we fear Him in the right way. We have a sense of awe. In Him we live and move and have our being and have that attitude to worship toward God. That is the first and great commandment. But then he said, the next one is this. He said, and, uh, and your, he says, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So that is the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not wrong to love yourself. People that hate themselves or commit suicide or have terribly low self-esteem, God doesn't want you to do that either. That's not good. You can love yourself without worshiping yourself. Some people have self-worship. They begin to think they're great, 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 and all this kind of thing, and that could be very bad and damaging, but you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So you've got to have that outflowing concern and genuine concern for every human being. And he said... You have answered rightly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Back then they thought their neighbor was a fellow, a fellow Pharisee, maybe not even a Pharisee, not even a Sadducee, you know what I mean? They had to be your particular part of Judaism and not even some other. They had this very picky parochial type of way of thinking often. But he said that, and certainly not a Gentile, as they would look at it back then, then Jesus answered, and he showed that every human being is your neighbor. That's the point. As you know, a certain man went down to, from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. Who was this man? We don't know. Was he a white man, a black man, an Arab? We don't know. A certain man. I think you've mentioned, heard me mention how I used to say this Italian young man at the last minute took a spear and threw it in Christ's side and he died. He screamed in pain and the blood gushed out. He died by the shedding of blood, not dying slowly. But I always assumed it was an Italian till I got my mind on it one time and I thought, no, it doesn't say. It just, as the old guy says, it just don't say. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. And the uh, Roman army had a whole bunch of uh, thousands of conscripts from all over the world. It could have been a man of Assyrian or German ancestry. It could have been a man of Britannia, the British ancestry, or Chinese, or what. We don't know. Some human being was conscripted into their army, and when he heard Jesus moan with pain, he turned and threw this spear. Shut up! And he did shut him up, and God guided that, frankly, so that Jesus died not of a broken heart, as the prophets try to say, or slowly. He died right then when that spear was rammed in his side by an unknown human being. Now, this is an unknown human being, too. We don't know the race of this man. So we don't have to say, well, this is a white man of the church. 
No, he was not a white man necessarily, which wouldn't make any difference, but it shows how God thinks. And he was not in the church. There wasn't any church yet. And he certainly was not of the Jewish or of the Jewish religion, apparently. It certainly doesn't say. So by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A Levite, when he arrived at the place, now here's the nicey, nice religious leader, you see. Often these men were very self-righteous. And he came and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Who were the Samaritans? They were a mixed people. As you read about them, I think it's in Second Kings 17, after the Israelites were conquered, why the king of uh, Syria moved in these various peoples, and they became the Samaritans. And they mixed the religion of their gods with the religion of the true God, and they became a mixed people religiously and ethnically as well, and the Jews tended to look down on them. A certain Samaritan, not one of the great ones, as this Pharisee would have looked at it, or some other religious Jew, uh, came, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, another human being, and went to him and, and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. The doctors used to make fun of things like that, but frankly, a lot of doctors have come to realize sometimes that's a very good way to do. Wine, if you pour wine in a wound, it sometimes causes the wound to heal a lot better than pouring in mercurochrome or iodine, as my dad used to like the strong stuff, iodine and stuff like that. It has a more gentle effect, but the alcohol in, in the wine there's something about it that causes a wound to heal even better, you'll sometimes feel. I'm not trying to say you ought to do that, but we need to realize these biblical examples are the mind of God. Depending on the circumstances, it's very good to follow those in this way. He set him on his own animal, set him on his own donkey or whatever, brought him to an inn. Did he just say, well, I'll give you some money, I hope you make it, and see you later? No, he literally walked alongside of him on his animal, took him to this, you know, Motel. I'm sure he didn't take him to Motel, motel 6. <laughs> he probably took him to a nice inn. Of course, they didn't have those various gradations back there. I'm just kidding. But he took him, I'm sure, to a decent place. The whole in story indicates he was a good man. And when took, told, he took care of him. And on the next day when he had to leave, he was a traveling man in his business. He took out two denarii, some money, gave them to the keeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. He was apparently a traveling man in his work and came back and forth and that innkeeper knew him and trusted him. In those days, a man's word was his bond. So he meant it. I will take care of him. Take care of who? We don't know. Who was this man? Another human being. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And then this religious Jew said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, Go and do thou likewise. So brethren, God is describing here, Jesus Christ is describing how to keep the second commandment. That's one way, of course, not the only way. But the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes right into this story. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Your neighbor is every human being made in God's image. And every human being made in God's image needs help. And if you're right there at the time, 
time. We're not right there as the people in Bangladesh are starving all the time from their terrible floods out there or places like that. We can't be everywhere, take all our money and send it. But if there's someone right there and you have the opportunity, you should try to help him and not quench the spirit in that situation. Try to learn to reach out. Reach out. Here's the human being. Here is one who's going to be there when you're there among the spirits of just men made perfect, finally, in the family of God, certainly at the end of the great white throne judgment, the overwhelming majority of even these so-called bad guys among the people that are killing people or torturing, or they're going to be there too when they have a genuine chance. Jesus said even the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah would come up and condemn the religious Jews because they didn't know. They didn't have any opportunity. These religious Jews had an opportunity and turned it down. So every human being is your neighbor. And he says, of course, go and do this. So this is something we've got to learn to do individually, you and me and all of us as a church. Back in John chapter 13, if you turn there with me, John 13 and beginning in verse 34, Jesus said here near the end of his human life, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, he told them back in Leviticus 19:18, love your neighbor as yourself. That's given way back there in Leviticus. What was new about this? This part, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. That's what made it new. He magnified how you love your neighbor by his whole life. That's what made it new. And with God's Spirit, you can do it more perfectly than they would have done back then. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. I know it's not easy for all of us. We'll have some new brethren coming with us here from everywhere, not just United, but people that are just, you know, out there in the world and God has called them or people have moved down here from New York or Chicago or here or there. And we don't want to create a a ladies' aid society where everyone comes here for the handout. We've got to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We want to encourage people to work. God says, six days shall you work. He says, a man will not work. He should not eat. You know that back in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Many places tell us that. But on the other hand, if they're in a genuine need at a particular time, we as a church should try to reach out to them and we as human beings should try to reach out to them and we should try to help them in every way we can. And I hope you all think about that. Do we call our fund the love fund or the emergency fund? Emergency fund. So that's the thing we've got to do. We do have an emergency fund, brethren. I meant to call Mr. Crockett or Mr. McNair, someone to get that straight, because through the years we've had various terms and worldwide and global and <laughs> here for such funds. We call it the emergency fund. So we aren't trying to support everyone who won't work. But on the other hand, if someone has a genuine tragedy and has lost his job through sickness or catastrophe or just here and has a big problem... And wherever we can, all over the world, all our lives, we should try to be givers. We've got to trust in God that He will take care of us for that. That's where faith comes in. Is God real? If God is real, then He will bless us for that. He will not make us suffer for that. And I think you know that. So anyway, this is the example that every human being is our brother. And then you turn over to chapter 15 of this book, 
John chapter 15, brethren, and notice what it says here in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. How do you want your prayers answered? If you soak your mind in the Bible, if you drink into the Bible, feed on the Bible, you see these thoughts will be in your mind and you'll begin to live this way, act this way, and then God will hear your prayers. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me and I have loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Christ set us an example that we should follow in His steps. He said, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another, love one another, help one another, serve one another. How? As I have loved you. Christ helped and healed and blessed all day long. Greater love has no one than this, that to lay down one's life for his friends. So there again, brethren, if they're your friends, if they're in God's church, and you're even here in our local church, what do you do? You lay down your life for your friends. That's going to be hard. A lot of us aren't used to doing that as much as probably God would have us do. We may have to tighten our belts once in a while if we're giving a little extra to new people that come in or people that are sick and in the tragedies. If one of our brethren is terribly injured in some of these uh, uh, floods and storms or if a whole group of brethren, we may have to give extra to help their brethren. Maybe in Florida, if they get another series of horrible storms coming through or another Katrina comes through the Gulf area or another horrible storm comes through out there in the Philippines. I know Mr. and Mrs. Benjur experienced that out there. And another terrible earthquake comes through Chile. There are times the local brethren can take care of it but we can't all give a little extra. We could all, want those of you who have good jobs, maybe if every one of us decided to give $100 in the next few weeks extra to the emergency fund. But think about it. I mean, everyone in this room right now, if you would all try to give an extra $100 to the emergency fund, it would be a tremendous boost. And we all ought to do that all around the world. The sermon will go out, and I hope all of you around the world can begin to do that. Let's be the church that keeps the second commandment. Let's be the church of good Samaritanism. Let's be family. Let's think about it, that we are family. This is our feeling, that these are our brethren. We want to help every human being. So I hope all of you can begin to think that way. Lay down your life for your friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you, Jesus said. Now, brethren, there will be times, as I've said, when you can't give to all the people in the world off in Bangladesh or somewhere else because they're not called and you have to take all your money. You've got to use your wisdom. There will be times in the church or in the work when, in, for instance, in our ministry or people in our employ will have to deal with them, move them from one job to another. We occasionally terminate someone. We occasionally terminate a minister if he even gets in a bad attitude. That's not a lack of love. That's not a lack of family. God rebukes and chastens every son he loves. And frankly, if you put people, the management books tell us, in a place where they don't belong, they're beginning to be rubbing and rubbing, so to speak, and irritating. You see, then the person is better off. 
and all the others are better off if they're not in a place where they don't belong. That's not a lack of love. That's just a matter if you do it in love. If any of you have a business, you know you have to do that. So don't think of that as a lack of love. You can't let your kid get his way in every possible situation and call that love. That's foolishness. That can hurt the child or hurt the employee or hurt your brother in the church. If you let a brother in the church begin to sin a little bit and you see him getting drunk regularly or committing fornication, are you showing love by letting him get away with his fornication? No, you're not. You're hurting him. The sooner he is corrected, God rebukes and chastens every son he loves, the sooner he is corrected, the better off he is as a human being. So you have to use wisdom. We're not to be foolish, but we are to have love and outflowing concern. That's what God wants, genuine outflowing concern based on love and wisdom in the way we deal with these situations and yet be willing to give, to help, to serve in every way we can. So that is very important. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Yes, we're to live the right way. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I've made known to you. Christ really revealed the whole purpose of God uh, in a way that had never been done before. Wise men and philosophers used to long to understand the purpose of life. And Christ, through the New Testament, began to open up that purpose. So we have to think about how can we show love in every way, in the right way, and in wisdom. Turn back to Jeremiah now, chapter 38. And we've used this in the last few years a number of times, I know, but it is a very important and I think very wonderful example back here in Jeremiah, if you would, chapter 38 and beginning in verse 4. Here it's telling as... Uh, I wonder if I'm having... Yeah. Telling about this uh, King Zedekiah had been uh, upset against Jeremiah because the princes were saying, Jeremiah is preaching about the city being conquered and we're going to be conquered and he's upsetting the public attitude. They're going to say that about us someday, brethren, so let's have a lot of sympathy here. He had to preach about their coming disaster, their coming conquest by the, by the Babylonians. And the local princes and politicians at that time said, uh, this is not good, uh, for this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. This is Jeremiah uh, 38, verse 4. Then Zedekiah, the king, said, the king of Judah, look, he is in your hand. He told these big shot princes he had to kind of let them get their way once in a while, a lot of pressure, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah, and you know the story, they cast him into a dungeon and let him down and there was no water in the dungeon but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire, maybe old uh, rags and dirty water and so forth. Now, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, here was a black man. And he was uh, one of the eunuchs in the king's house, and he heard that it happened. This black man had the fear of God. He had come to recognize that the Jews had the true God, the God of creation, the real God. And so he had the fear of God. And Ebed-Melech taking his life in his hands, when you understand the way they acted back then, he could have had his head chopped off for this. He went to the king's house and spoke to the king and told him what had happened. And the king then by that time had a little bit of 
uh, sympathy and hurt over what had happened. The princes weren't around pressuring him, and he realized that, and he was told, uh, here, Jeremiah, you see, he had, he had a certain fear, the king did, because he in his heart knew Jeremiah was a true minister. Jeremiah was the minister of God. And so he feared, and he tried to do the right thing. And so he said to Abed-Medak, uh, to go and take him out of the dungeon. So Ebed-Melech took men with him and took old clothes and rags and went down by ropes, this is verse 11, to Jeremiah. And then Ebed-Melech said to Jeremiah, put these old clothes under your armpits. Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the king. They saved his life because of the mercy and the love and the outflowing concern, you see, love your neighbor as yourself. Here was Ebed-Melech, a different race and a different station in life, yet he had the fear of God and recognized that Jeremiah's life was important. And he gave his life, in a sense, risked his life to help this man. And this is given in the Bible as a wonderful example. So Jeremiah kept on living and then you find a little later, after the Babylonians came in and conquered Jerusalem, and Jerusalem fell, Jeremiah was allowed to go free. But it says near the end of chapter 39 here now, chapter 39, verse 15, Now the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, while he was still in prison, although not in the, in the dungeon now, saying, Go, speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good. He was going to punish them. Why? Because God is evil? No. God does punish in love. People have to be awakened sometimes. And he did that for their good. When you read about the horrible adulteries and sacrificing their children, all the rottenness some of even the Jews got into during those years, God had to crack down. I'm going to punish them. But, he says to verse in verse 17 to this man, this Ethiopian, I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you. Why? Because you have put your trust in me. Think about that, brethren. All through the Old Testament, that has hit me more the last few years as I've learned to read the Psalms more and certain other parts of the Bible. You are blessed if you put your trust in God. It says that over and over again. God looks to the man who puts his trust in God. In just helping others? No, in every single situation. You put your trust in God and you do what God says because you know he said it, it's going to work out right, and you know he will protect you even though you do it, and even if you die, he will resurrect you, and you'd better do what God says. You put your total trust in God. Each of us has got to do that in the fear of God. Put your trust in God. If you help someone in the church and you're a little bit short the next month, are you going to die? No. No. You may have to tighten your belt. But you'd better put your trust in God and do what God says to reach out to others, to help them, to give sometimes even sacrificially to the work, certainly, 
and to help others sometimes as well and put your trust in God to know and know that you know that it is going to work for good because God is real, God is there, God is your Father and He will take care of you if you do what He says. So you got to have that attitude like Ebed-Melech had. That's the whole thing. And I hope all of us can begin to do that a lot more. I hope all of you will give to the emergency fund. I hope all of you will start reaching out to others more. I hope your brethren around the world will help those people as these other tragedies come in Chile, in Haiti, in the Philippines, all over the earth. And your brethren there in Australia helping your brethren there in Queensland as this thing spreads. Just on the radio, just an hour or so before I left for church, the announcer was saying the floods are getting worse. The rain is still falling in Queensland. That's true. I'm not just saying that. That's what it said on the news an hour or two before I left to come here. They're still raining. And those six-foot-long, second-most deadly snakes in the whole world are going to begin to come out and around. God's people need protection. So far, they have been protected. But we need to pray for them. And we need to see, and I'm sure we can call and ask Mr. Tyler if they need more help for their emergency fund at this time. And maybe when we need more fund help, if we need to have another Katrina here, then some of them from Australia or Canada can help us. We are family. We are family around the world. And we've got to learn to have that attitude in every way that we can. So we need to trust in God to take care of it. Turn again now to Hebrews chapter 12, brethren. Turn again, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. Remember this principle as it ties in with this sermon. We are not standing before Mount uh, Sinai with thunder and lightning shaking us and scaring us from God. But he says, we have come to Mount Zion, in verse 22, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, to those registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. God is fashioning and molding you. God is fashioning and molding me. God is testing and testing each one of us to see how much we will respond to Him, how much we will learn to love and worship and adore and fear in the right way and obey God, and how much more we will reach out to and love and and, and give to our fellow man and forgive our fellow man and all those things. He's watching each one of us. He's testing and testing us to have the spirits of just men made perfect, ever more perfectly refined, so that he can, we can be in his kingdom, in his family, his very family, and bear his name and interact with God the Father, interact with Jesus Christ and walk with them, talk with them, commune with them, fellowship with them, and be part of that family throughout all eternity. And this is one way we can do it, to love each other in the church, to have the concept of family, to lay down our lives for one another, to give and to help and to serve in every way we can so we can be part of that eternal family, the spirits of just men made perfect.